All right, guys, this is Jason in Savannah, and I just listened to your pitch for Season 4, and you sold me. So I just went to your uh, Patreon page, and I bumped up a tier, so I'm now a $10 Excelsior member. So I'm looking forward to Season 4. Pressure's on. Don't disappoint me. See you soon. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. The amazing spider talk, the amazing spider talk, come swing Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, but the annuals don't count. Well, maybe they will. I don't know. We'll find out soon, won't we, Dan? <laughs> yes, we will. We will. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for part one of a special Amazing Friends episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and a creator as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. So if you want to learn everything we know about Spidey, why not subscribe to our show starting back with the first season? In the previous episode, we announced what we were going to be doing for season four of Amazing Spider Talk and detailed all the huge changes that are coming to the show. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, go back and check it out. But today, Dan, you and I, we've got something extra special for our listeners here. Yes, Mark. Yeah, we may be on hiatus, but that doesn't mean the fun has to stop. Today, we've invited Tom Brevoort, Marvel's senior vice president of publishing, to join us on the show. Tom began working at Marvel Comics back in 1989 and has held a variety of positions over the years, rising from an intern to assistant editor, editor, and executive editor on titles such as New Avengers, Civil War, Fantastic Four, Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, and so many others. He also famously worked on a number of Spider-Man titles during the Clone Saga, wrote a manifesto about the character that helped to redefine Amazing Spider-Man during Brand New Day, oversaw the transition to the superior Spider-Man, and is just an all-around expert on the history and characters of Marvel Comics. I mean, truly, this guy knows almost everything. <laughs> Today, we're going to play part one of our lengthy interview with Tom. We touched on a number of topics, including his own collecting stories and habits, but also how Marvel may address the uh, the current coronavirus and other real-world crises of the moment. Great. So let's get right to our interview. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends, the kind of guy I know the other friends who recommend. Find out about the things they created. You'll love them so much that you wish you dated. But you're just friends, they're an amazing friend, a friend, a friend, a friend, they're an amazing friend. All right, Dan, we are joined here by Tom Brevoort. Tom, thank you so much for joining us in, in I'm assuming, your isolation right now of sorts. <laughs> Pretty much. It's been about 10 days. 
We've been about a week here where I am. Dan, how are you holding up right now? I'm 12 days in, I believe, or like 11 days in. So, you know, probably about as well as Tom. I, I feel like we need a volleyball with a handprint on it right now just to get, get you know, mark the days right now. Right. <laughs> but let's, let's actually start with something a little fun and a little little tangential here, Tom. You're you're talking with two collectors of Amazing Spider-Man comics who have uh, both completed the entire run of the series. And if memory serves, I, I, I remember hearing this in one interview of yours. You you have collected every issue of Fantastic Four, correct? Yes, I have. A, I have a full run of Fantastic Four. Okay, so let, let like let's talk like that 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 compulsive need to collect here for a second. So uh, a lot of our listeners are obviously familiar with our our quests, and they are kind of collecting full runs of Spider Man or whatever other series that they're doing uh, similarly. So from your end, what what made Fantastic Four the series for you? And you know, are there are there any kind of stories with some certain acquisitions of issues that you know are kind of fun or memorable for you? I mean, I feel like I mean, Dan has some, I have some from Spider Man. You, you got to have right, some from Fantastic right. Four, right? Well, uh, to some degree, yeah. You know, Fantastic Four was always and still kind of is my my book. You know, in the same way that you feel about Amazing Spider Man. I've got the same thing with Fantastic Four and have for a long time. I didn't specifically set out at any point to, you know, until fairly late in the game to, to really collect the whole run per se. I'd set out to read it all. The very first uh, trip I, was, I, I made to a comic shop, the first comic shop I ever went to uh, was, a, was a Heroes World in Levittown. And one of the things that I, I found there and I got there was the 1970s George Olszewski official index to the Fantastic Four, the, the early black and white ones that he did in the 70s. And this was a book that showed you, you know, all the covers and had little index write-ups for all the stories of the, at that point, 180 issues of Fantastic Four that there were. And I had started reading you know, with like 177. So this is pretty much everything that there was. And so, you know, I started as much as I could buying, you know, older issues and, and such. But at the same time, I was also buying, you know, Marvel's greatest comics reprints of those old stories and so forth. And, you know, filling things in, there were two or three instances that kind of led to me ending up with the full run. And the first and it, it's pretty stupid, <laughs> but you know, you were, you know, we were, we were, you know, grade school kids, maybe going into junior high school was that I had a buddy whose name was Dave Steckel. Uh, and, and, uh, Dave and Dave was also a big fantastic four fan as a kid. And he was buying, he had bought up, you know, an assortment of, of, of issues and so forth. And at some point for some reason, you know, he did a he did a count, uh, and he determined that he had more original issues of Fantastic Four than I did. That while <laughs> that while I probably had had read more of the stories and so forth with my reprints and my whatnot, he had more original issues. And this became a sort of nonsense competition between the two of us, where we would go out and we would buy more issues to fill in the gaps. You know, and and we jockeyed with each other for it must have been a couple of months until finally 
there was some local uh, show. They used to do year, yearly craft shows at the various malls around us. And that was one of the very few places that you would be able to really get back issues in those days. And I went to, to whatever the next one of those was. And I filled in my run back to like, you know, 125 or something. Uh, and at that point, having been so- soundly bested, he immediately, you know, ignored the whole competition from that <laughs> point on because he didn't really <laughs> care about it per se. He just, he just was having fun winding me up. Uh, <laughs> so at that point, you know, I, 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 I'd done a bunch of that, the, you know, filling in and, and over the, over the years, I would occasionally end up with, uh, you know, another issue here or there, you know, going, going, going all the way back. The earliest thing I had at that point was I think 21, I had a beat up copy of 21 that I'd gotten at some early show. And then in, in 1981, my family relocated, we moved to Delaware for my dad's job and in Delaware, after a while, you know, what became my local comic shop opened up, which was Captain Blue Hen Comics in Newark, Delaware, which is still there. Hopefully it will still be there after <laughs> this Corona situation wraps up. But, but, you know, even today it's still there. And so I became, you know, after a while, a regular customer at the shop. And one of the things that they did was in the eighties, they had a pull list system where if you spent X amount, I forget what, how it worked, but it was one of those, if you spend money on new books, you'll accrue credit towards back issues. And so they, you know, at time, from time to time, they would have books that would come in, you know, on the wall or otherwise. I know I got an FF 11 off of their wall, which for that, at that point became my oldest uh, FF issue, you know, and I got that on credit. And for the longest time, they had an FF1, and mm-hmm. it was in it was in like their display case by the register, and it was $125. And I, it's not the first time I had seen a Fantastic Four one. My first encounter with an FF1 was that first trip to the to the comic shop that I, I mentioned earlier. And the way that came about was my dad worked; he was a, a VP for Chase Manhattan Bank, and he was posted at a, at a bank branch that happened to be in the mall area that this hero's world opened up in. So one weekend he tells me, Hey, there's this store by, by uh, out in this mall. He didn't tell me it was the mall next to where his, his, uh, work office was, because if I knew that at that point, I'd be bugging him all the time to go there and buy me comics, which eventually I did. But, you know, do you want to go out there this weekend? And of course I was, oh yeah, absolutely. I want to go out there. And so on our, you know, on the, on the, the trip out, I'm strategizing in my own mind, in my own head. And, and, you know, my strategy, I had just that, that summer beforehand become a fantastic four reader. Before that, I was, I was exclusively uh, a, a DC guy for many years and and I'd finally cracked Marvel with Fantastic Four. So pretty much at that point, I was reading DC books and Fantastic Four, and that was about it. Uh, and I would eventually branch out into the other Marvel stuff. So going driving out to Levittown to the shop, I decided my my move was going to be I am going to buy the the oldest issue of Fantastic Four that I can get. Uh, and the oldest issue of Fantastic Four that they happened to have there that day was number one, which was seventy five dollars. And which I did not buy. <laughs> uh, I did buy 
you know, the oldest issue that they had in sort of the regular bins. Like they had a couple of issues. One was, was one of them. 14 was another. I think they had a two, you know, that were, that were sort of, you know, on display behind the counter, you know, in, in some sort of glass case. But in the actual, you know, back issue bins, the oldest issue I could come up with there was, was 51. Uh, and I bought 51 that day. And for the longest time, my, my copy of FF 51 was my, my oldest FF book, a real classic story. So anyway, I, you know, uh, over the years, I, I wound up with a bunch of the issues and slowly but steadily, you know, I would start to fill in the, the cracks. Once I started working at Marvel and relocated back to New York, there were a couple of comic shops in the area there that had older books, one of which was Long Island Comics, which is no longer there, but was there for years. It was a real staple of, of the area. It lasted for a solid 30 years. At one point, when I first encountered it as a kid, it was called the Batcave, <laughs> and, the, and then the 1989 Batman movie came out, uh, and DC came down on them and went, you can't call your shop the Batcave, dude. Yeah. But I remember it. In my head, it'll always be the Batcave, because I bought a bunch of books there, and, and, and it was an early comic shop in my quasi area. So at some point on some boring, you know, weekend, you know, I, I drove out, I hadn't been to the shop in, in the longest time. And I, I went out there for some reason, maybe I was looking for particular issues of something, uh, or maybe I was just bored that weekend and, and went, Oh, I'll go out to the bat cave. Cause it's a, a 40 minute drive. And, and, you know, maybe I'll, I'll find something. It's still there. That's interesting. And I went out there uh, and going through their their uh, back issue bins, their back issue bins went much further back than a lot of places. Like you could find not just on the wall, but you could find in their bins actual no kidding rare books, wow. uh, rare and old books. And I ended up I pulled uh, I know an FF nine I, I pulled out of there. I know I pulled an FF three out of there a, a, at a later trip. I know, I know eventually years later, I bought Avengers one that way, Oof. $95, my Avengers one right before, <laughs> right before I put out my Avengers one. So it was, <laughs> it was good. It was good timing. So anyway, so now it's the very early nineties. I'm working at Marvel. I've got, you know, a scattering of issues up to FF back to FF three and, and two things happen. That, that make me go, okay, I'm, I'm going to just fill out the rest of the run. Technically two and a half, but I'll get to the half in a second. Thing one is I went to one of the, the yearly you know, quasi-conventions. It was, it was a convention, but not like a big deal like the New York Comic Con is today. It was one of the conventions that was held in the hotel that was across the street from Penn Station. Hotel Pennsylvania you're talking about? or Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, did them, they did them for years. You know, ultimately much more of a, of a, like a comic show where you bought and sold comics than what we think of today as, as an actual convention with panels and, and cosplay and all of that. There was a little of that, but really the big draw was you've got a big dealer's room where, where lots of people were there and were selling books. Uh, and I was going there, you know, on behalf of Marvel, Marvel had a booth at this place and I was doing time, you know, that weekend, Saturday and Sunday working the booth. And as I typically did, I, you know, would go out on the floor and I would look around and I would spend and I would buy stuff. And so it was right towards the end of the show. And I happened towards a dealer 
and I had spent like most of the, the spare cash I had on me. I was down to a couple of bucks and I, I, I found my way to a dealer who had on the wall a copy of Fantastic Four number one. And it was described as, as literally on the, like the, the, the price label that he had on it. It says, you know, beat up like a rag copy, 99 bucks. And I Mm. looked at that and I went, I can do $99, (laughs) but I don't, but I don't have $99 on me. And this is before the day when every dealer at a show would do credit cards or whatnot. So I, I lit out of there. I, raced down the block to a to a, an ATM which fortunately they did have in those days <laughs> <laughs> and I pulled out the $99 and I went back and I bought the issue and so now I had FF1 you know an actual no fooling you know except no substitutes copy of FF1 the second thing that happened was that a fellow by the name of Jeff Bonnevert put out a comic it was an independent comic, and nobody remembers this comic but me, I am sure. I've, I have a copy, and I've seen others over the years, but very infrequently. I, you know, if you search for it online, it's difficult to, to even come up with an image of it. Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> it was this book called Fun Boys. And Fun Boys was, it was an independent comic that was a story about these three kids, three neighborhood kids, uh, running the foul of, of bullies and and having these adventures and so forth. But one of the things that they do in the course of this story is they go to the, to the store and they buy the new issue of fantastic four. And one of the things that happens is in the course of the story is their, you know, their tormentor Mo catches them and, and shreds rips up their copy of fantastic four number, whatever it happened to be the new, new fantastic four. And this becomes a motivating thing to them. And one of the characters does this impassioned speech to the other, where he's talking to them about how, you know, they, they, they need to set this right because from, from, from this point on, he's going to be known as the boy who doesn't have a complete set of fantastic four and the shame of not having a complete run of fantastic four would haunt him for the rest of his days. And that, that, that people would look at him and cry, Oh no, there goes the boy who does not have. And I, I read this book uh, and I was going to be going to the San Diego Comic-Con for, I think it was for the first year, first time I'd been out there, you know, that year. And so I'd stockpiled, uh, you know, a bunch of cash for that. Uh, and I read this book and I thought to myself, I cannot be a, a, a boy who does not have a complete set of fantastic work. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly given that I've already got one. I've got the toughest piece of that already. Yeah. You know, and I've, I own, like, I, I know I'd filled in by that point, at least back to a hundred solid, maybe a bit further, maybe, you know, into the, the, the nineties or the eighties. And there might've been an occasional issue missing in the run here or there. So I went out to that San Diego with a, with a mission. And my mission was, I'm going to, I'm going to fill in the run. And that was what I did that San Diego in between doing panels and talking to talent and you know, so forth is I went out on the floor and, and, you know, slowly, but surely I would go around to all the tables that they had and find copies of all the issues I was missing in my price range. Something that I wouldn't have thought I would have, uh, would have ever done uh, because it seemed like an impossible quest, even a couple of years earlier, the most expensive book I bought, the most expensive book in the whole run was fantastic for two for which I paid a hundred dollars. 
So, so my FF2 cost me more than my FF1. Wow. But yeah, I filled in the rest of the run at that show, and that was it. From that point on, I was I was impervious to mockery. <laughs> Do you remember the last issue you got? Like, what was the final piece of the puzzle? Well, again, they were all, because it was all at one show, Okay, you know, I, I came out with a stack of, you know, 30, 35 books. The two was probably about the last, I don't know if it was literally the last book I bought, but it was probably pretty close because that was the big ticket item and, uh, or the biggest ticket item. And I was, you know, I was comparison shopping all over that floor, but I know at that same show, I bought four, I bought five, I bought six, I think I bought seven. Eight, I think I got I had gotten earlier. Ten, I might have gotten earlier, but you know, I I I just all the all the way through, I I came out with a stack of thirty or forty books. Years later, you know, maybe almost ten years later, I don't know if it was ten, might might have been a little longer, might have been a little little uh, earlier. I had a break in at my house. My home was my home was robbed, uh, and it was robbed by some know nothing scale who who didn't really know what he was doing. But one of the things that that he did, in addition to you know taking VCRs and and you know camcorders and and you know crap of 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 that nature, not knowing you know what he was doing, you know in my in my you know main room, I had a bookcase and the bookcase had you know books you know comics on it, including the Fantastic Four run, and he pulled just oh, no. random randomly pulled out a section and walked off with it, and he didn't know you know what he was doing but he basically took between ff like 21 and i'm going to say 38 approximately and that was that was a that was a little a little painful blow to my heart yeah um, but on 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 the plus side if he'd gone like another inch over he'd have taken the first 20 Right. Or the other way, you would have gotten Galactus and this man, this monster, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so, so there was I, some, some bullets dodged, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But I, but I went, you know, I, the, the next show I went out to after that, after that theft, you know, we, you know, we call the cops and so forth and you never recover any of that. There's no, no way you're, you're getting those books back. But I went out to the next show uh, and, and I did it again. I filled in all those books. I went to, to, I, I, Forget, I think it was a Chicago show. It would have, it would have probably been a Wizard World in those days. Maybe it was, maybe it was just Chicago Comic Con. I'm not sure because I'm a little vague as to what year it was. But I, I went out on the floor and I bought 21 through 38 again, just like I had done years before, walking around and getting copies. And I remember I ended up buying two copies of 36, and I still got the spare copy of 36 on my spinner rack here because. I bought a copy of 36 and I paid like nothing for it, but it was, it was really, you know, beaten up and, and sort of nasty or nastier than I liked. And I opened it up and I was like, I, 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 there's enough cash here. I can, I can do a better copy of six of 36. So I'll buy, I'll buy another 36. So Tom, you know, Mark and I have had this, like your friend and you, this competition over the years where it's sometimes it's friendly. Sometimes it's not so friendly. And we argue over whether or not the annuals count in our collection. And, you know, I'm pro annual and Mark is anti annual despite owning them. 
Hold on. It's not that I'm anti-annual. I just feel that they're a separate series. It's not the same series. It's like, you know, it's like not a B book, but it's, you know, it's it's different from a cataloging standpoint. That's my argument, Tom. Well, Tom, right. I, I, from that answer, I, I hope you get an idea of, of the heat uh, associated with this. So uh, may I be so bold, Mark, as to put the fate of this in Tom's hands? <laughs> Tom, Tom, do you feel that annuals count? To these series, uh, gentlemen. To be to be fair here, you know the annuals count, the specials count, the giant sizes count. They all count. So it's you've either got it all or you don't have it all. Well, that's an interesting answer because that means we both don't have it all. So, Mark, <laughs> Mark, the quest well, I think, continues. I think with I think with Amazing Spider-Man. You know, like, I don't know if the giant sizes really count there in that giant size Spider-Man was really more of an adjunct to Marvel team up. But I think the annuals certainly count if there were giant size, you know, specials or one offs. We did a lot of stupid 700.1s and things over the years. Yeah. Um, I think we those all count. <laughs> uh, we do have those. Yes. You know, you know, I wouldn't for, for, for Amazing Spider-Man, I would not fault you for not having issues of. Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man or Webb or any of that stuff, you know, it would really have to be, you know, the central Spider-Man book. The black and white magazine is, is a separate thing. Uh, but yeah, the annuals count anything, you know, if it, if it's a core amazing Spider-Man issue, it, it counts. I have a, I have a Spider-Man uh, story that, that relates to, <laughs> to, to what you just said, again, going back to when I was a kid. Because I had a I had a, a another buddy who who collected comics. Again, this would have been in like my junior high school days. Uh, a fellow by the name of Israel Litwack, and you know he and I would both you know collect you know various things, and you know we would talk comics and so forth. And there was in his neck of the woods there was a shop, and it wasn't really a comic shop. It was this place called Bush's Hobbies. And they were a hobby store. So they st- they sold old comics, but also, you know, collectible cards, baseball cards and coins and old silver. They were kind of halfway between like a pawn shop and, and a collectibles shop. You know, the sort of the sort of place that you don't really find anymore quite. But they had boxes of old comics and they would restock them every now and again. And so there was one you know day or one week where Israel told me, you know, he'd, he'd been over there and he'd found like three or four old Steve Ditko Spider-Mans in the 20s, 21 and 23 and I think 24 and 20, I'm going to say 27, you know, something like that, which was pretty impressive to me at the time. So the next week or whatever it is, we go to the, you know, we make a trip out to, to, to the place and we're, you know, rifling the bins for whatever we happen to be interested in. And I look in the Amazing Spider-Man area, and there's Amazing Spider-Man 25. And I like Amazing Spider-Man 25. That's a good book. I'm, I'm taking that. I'm adding that to my stack. And I do. And so I'll continue shopping. And Israel discovers that I've got Amazing 25. Uh, and he's pissed. <laughs> he doesn't know if he's if he missed it last time, like he rifled by it or something, or it wasn't there or whatnot. But clearly, it's all a part of the the set that he has. And what right do I have to buy it and break up this thing that that he was completing? I didn't really, you know, 
like that argument. My argument was I want it. I've got it. I'm going to buy it. It's mine. You know, leave me alone. Except that once I got to like the final tally of everything I had, I was no lie a quarter short. I was 25 cents short. <laughs> and my friend, my, 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 my pal, Israel Litwack, refused to loan me that quarter. <laughs> because because he said no no this is you know you're doing this is wrong uh, and i was you know young enough and not confident enough yet to go to the dude at the counter and say look cut me the deal on this for the quarter pal i didn't i didn't do that in the end you know being being out of options I gave him, I gave, uh, uh, Litwack the, F, the, the amazing 25. I said, okay, fine. I can't do it. It's yours. You buy it. <laughs> and I'll, and that was it. You know, whatever I replaced it with, I think cost a buck more. And he loaned me the dollar for the other book. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't like it was, you know, he was, he was just being a, a, a jerk. He just, he, he wanted that amazing Spider-Man 25 and, and he was going to get it no matter what. And he did. So he, he bested me that day. Don't, don't move in on someone else's collection, Tom. That, I guess that's the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, now that I'm, I feel just like utterly defeated by all this now, you know, <laughs> annuals count and, you know, like playing interference with other people's comics. I, I, I do kind of want to, turn the conversation here to, you know, we, we obviously referred to this when, when we started, but to, just to kind of address the current state of affairs, you know, obviously over the last couple of weeks where we, we have found ourselves living in a new world, so to speak, one that's probably a little confusing and, and scary. But since in addition to being an editor, Tom, I, I, I've always viewed you also as a historian of comics. Can you talk a little bit about the role superhero comics can play in times like these, these, these times of like social crisis, economic crisis? I mean, you know, and, and do you see Marvel addressing the current situation in the not so distant future in the comics themselves? I don't know that we'll do a story that's specifically about the coronavirus in the books while it's happening. That seems like it has all the the, the potential to go wrong and be offensive to people who are dealing with a very, very difficult thing. You know, maybe as the, you know, assuming hopefully the situation gets better and we have a little distance from it, you know, we might do stories that, that touched on it directly. What I think we're more likely to do is stories that, you know, speak to the situation metaphorically, which is what we tend to do best anyway. You know, in, in, in terms though of, you know, what, what comics, uh, can do in a case like this, you know, this is a time where suddenly everybody, you know, like it or not has, has a little bit more free time for themselves and, you know, has a need to, to, you know, be kind of taken away from their very, the very real troubles that everybody uh, is grappling with and comics as an entertainment medium, like any other is one thing that can do that. And, you know, because, most of our creators already work scattered around the world uh, and work mostly in studios by themselves. We're one of the very few entertainment mediums that at least so far has not shut down, you know, completely right this moment. Nobody's making movies. Nobody's making 
television programs. You, you can't get enough people together. It's, it's too dangerous. But we can still make comics. And so the, the Marvel machine is continuing on, you know, at a, at a distance, at a remote, with everybody even more alienated from one another than we usually are to create these stories of, of these characters triumphing over adversity and doing fantastical things that, that can take you away from the, the problems in your life for, you know, 10 or 20 minutes. And, you know, hopefully we'll continue to be able to produce those and distribute those so that people can get a, a break and an escape from the, the truly awful situation that we're all dealing with around the, the globe. There's really, you know, there's been nothing like this in my lifetime. And you really kind of have to go back to World War II or, or the Depression to find anything that would, would equal it. So it's a, it's, a, it's a scary moment. But, you know, in those, in those times, not so much the Depression because the comic field was only just getting started then, but certainly during the, the First World War, you know, comics were, uh, uh, you know, a great source of, of entertainment and certainly comfort to people, you know, who were fighting overseas and were far away from home. And it's not quite the same thing now, but just the fact that our, our medium is, is, you know, simple and portable, you know, it sucks right now to be a comic book retailer. You know, you're, 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 a, you're a cash and carry business for the most part. You rely on a, a regular weekly clientele, but you know, those guys are, are survivors and, you know, we've already seen, I'm sure you've seen it. Hopefully the shops that uh, you frequent are, have found ways to do things like curbside pickup and home delivery for their regular customers and so forth. Things that, that can keep a pipeline of, of material going from, from them to the audience. And, you know, can, people can continue to, to read and get uh, a steady stream of of Marvel books, and then obviously you know the the the, the in the, in hushed tones digital as well. You know whether it's whether it's through the Marvel app, Comicsology, the Marvel Unlimited subscription service, you know, or, or whatnot. You know that's a, that's a real easy way to get a a, a steady stream of uh, new Marvel material if you're you know trapped and suddenly have hours to fill, you know that 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 you didn't have before. Tom, uh, uh, hitting on that note, a lot of our listeners have expressed a fear to us that after this crisis, it's likely that their local comic stores could be forced to close up shop, like you were saying. What do you think Marvel can do to help stem the tide in a situation like this? I, I, I saw that you know, Marvel's offering kind of like a 15% additional discount, but do you think there's you know a possibility that they could go further or do something like what Image is doing, where they're accepting returns on the products for 60 days do you think that's something that marvel is considering well look this is honestly uh something that i really can't speak to directly it's not really appropriate for me to, to sure. do so you know given that you know it's not just marvel it's the larger disney organization over over top and there's a lot of people involved and right now we're just talking off the cuff i wouldn't know well enough what i was talking about all i can tell you for sure is you know our our team is monitoring the situation very closely. We're in constant contact with retailers across the globe to find out what's going on, you know, at their stores and what can be done to help in a meaningful fashion. And, you know, we'll continue to, to do that. You know, hopefully if there's other things that we can do that are legitimate and, and, you know, achievable, 
we'll we'll do that as well. We're taking this very seriously. There's a couple of other things that we have in the pipeline that we're talking about that that will will also help in a relief effort manner, but we're not really ready to say anything about that yet. Uh, and like I say, I've just particularly now when I've been out of the office and everyone's been out of the office for like 12 days, uh, I haven't had enough direct conversations with people to know exactly where the ball lies and everything is. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to tell you anything that's, that's, you know, wrong or, or off the cuff. Sure. I'm not, I'm not trying to get you off the cuff. I, I you know, it's just a, a yeah. genuine fear that a lot of people are having right now. I, I think a lot of people really connect to the medium of comics through the kind of like local store experience, maybe less today than they used to but you know i know it's an essential part of my comics buying experience is kind of walking into those stores and you know i think everybody's afraid about everything right now no and i i i think you're right and i think that 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 fear is you know it's it's an understandable response to an unknown situation and the reality is nobody knows we don't know how long this is going to go on for we don't know what other changes are pending you know or what's yet to come so like everybody, we're all going to have to react to it in the in the moment and and you know do our best to cope with the situation as it as it arises. You know, beyond that, like I say, I I, I don't have anything concrete. I, I'd love to be able to give you a a more solid bit of of uh, uh, you know uh, hope or <laughs> a, sure. a, you know, a, a light and and uh, you know please understand that we take it obviously very seriously. It is our livelihood as well as that of those comic book retailers. So this is not something that we're we're casual with, but it is enormously complicated. I don't want to get too much uh, into the 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 image thing, but image has their own problems right now as a result of the 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 steps that they took and and you know that they maybe should have uh talked with some people about that a little bit more before making that move i I can't claim to understand how any of it works so you know (laughs) i i I read different press releases and go huh i wonder how that all works so uh, good to hear from you that like everybody is treating it as seriously as like we all kind of really want you to treat it which makes sense it's your business you know Tom, just to kind of bring this back to the the, the some of the comics themselves and, and and what have you, you know, Marvel being always known as the world outside your window, probably, and I know that these situations aren't completely, uh, not a perfect analogy, but you know, I I can't help but think about the September 11th issue of Amazing Spider-Man during times like this. I mean, can you can you speak a little bit about the importance of that? issue in terms of both Spider-Man canon and, and Marvel history. And I, I mean, you know, again, I know that you said that, you know, we're probably, you know, you probably wouldn't have the coronavirus be addressed in the same way, but I, I don't know, just, right. is there, is there any kind of connection in terms of like how that event was addressed and what that kind of meant for both Marvel, but also what was going on in the real world at the time? Yeah, I think, I think the difference uh, obviously is, you know, and and I don't mean to trivialize the awfulness that was 9/11 by putting it this way. Those terrorist attacks happened, and they were done. You know, by that morning, it was it was over. You know, and all you were dealing with was the wreckage and the fallout. You know, and so even though you know we we moved very very quickly, Marvel to to do both the Spider-Man issue and the Heroes Benefit book, and and got those done in only a couple of weeks, and you know, those wounds were still very fresh at that time. 
the actual event was finished. It was done. You know, whereas the current situation with the coronavirus is is ongoing. It's yeah. it's still happening. And and that I think is the difference in terms of trying to craft a story now that spoke that speaks meaningfully to what we're dealing with. We don't know what's going to happen next, and and until we have enough distance to be able to contextualize this communal experience and try to you know get a shape of it, it's 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 foolish and and maybe even reckless to try to do that story right now. That having been said. Going back to 9-11, you know, Marvel is a is a New York-based company, has been pretty much ever since it started in the 30s. You know, the day of 9-11, when the first tower was hit, I would have been walking from my train station to the Marvel offices. We were far enough uptown that you couldn't, you know, you had no idea it was happening. You wouldn't have heard or seen anything there. But we were all right there in, in Midtown. As that happened, you know, playing out in real time, we all saw the second tower get hit live on television on the little screens that we'd all cobbled together in the bullpen to to get, you know, a, a sense of what was going on in the world uh, and try to figure out what the hell was happening. And I came in the next day. I came in on 912 because I was stupid. I stayed at like two in the morning watching coverage and I called into the Marvel offices and there was nothing on the Marvel you know, a switchboard that said that we were closing the offices. So I went in the next day, nine twelve, and the city looked very much like what the city looks like right now. There was nobody on the streets. There was nothing except for uh, occasionally, you know, some sort of big either troop transport or or you know truck would be driving downtown, and and it was kind of an eerie feeling to be walking around in that thing. And so this was obviously an event even if you weren't in, in Manhattan, that impacted and affected people very dramatically. And, you know, so, so uh, Joe Quesada and Axel Alonso had talked about wanting to do something, you know, in a Spider-Man story, figuring that Spider-Man is pretty much uh, the most New Yorker of all of the Marvel characters. And Axel reached out to, to JMS and, and Joe, you know, took this on board. And, you know, as he tells it, and I think he goes into this in in fairly great depth in his autobiography, which just came out, Becoming Superman, on sale at a store near you. You know, he pretty much like said that he, you know, he sat down in, I forget, you know, what show he was working on or, you know, what thing he was doing. You know, he went back to his, you know, makeshift office and he said, like, it just poured out of him that he just was in almost a fugue state and he wrote those those 20 pages uh, and set them into Axel. And I remember I read it first as a script, you know, Axel, had pa- they passed it around to a bunch of us to read, to, to react to, and to make sure everything was on the up and up. And it was a powerful moving script, even before Johnny got to, to draw it all. And, and, you know, drawing, drawing that comic probably took a few years off of John's life just yeah. because it was so traumatic. Uh, and John, you know, he and his family, the Ramitas, they're they they're a real New York family. They they're they're local to the area, and so having to, to to have all of that reference and to be staring at it day after day as you're 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 you know putting this book together, it w- it had to have been a, a, a huge struggle, and it's a it's a it's quite an achievement as a as a piece of 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 comic book literature. But and it was also it was very thoughtful. It was very cathartic. It it helped 
to contextualize a lot of the feelings and give some release to people for all this complicated stuff that they were feeling in the aftermath of that moment. And that's what it did well, that through metaphor, you know, it was able to give you an outlet to process some of the trauma and the stuff that you'd experienced and, you know, let it exit your body, you know, through the process of experiencing the story. So it really was an awfully good piece of work. And in that, you know, in that moment, it was very much of, of the, of the moment, like you couldn't do it at any other time. And, and in the, at that point, it, it really, it's, it, it, it served a need, not that anybody even necessarily knew that that need was quite going to be there. It just seemed like something that at that moment it should have been done. And so that's, I think, as much as anything, that's why people remember it. Not just that it was done, but that it was done so well. Uh, and that it did give people, uh, you know, some sort of, not quite closure, but, but some, some sort of way to process, you know, all, all the stuff that they'd been feeling that had been building up inside them. The, the, the anxiety and the fear and the pain and, and, and so forth. And kind of, you know, say that it's, it's, it's you know, th- this happened. <clears throat> we're we're, we're going to get through this. You know, it's going to be okay. We all have to look out for one another. And that's the same kind of message that I would tend to want to craft in a story we would be doing relating to what we're all going on uh, and dealing with right now. And and I'm sure it's it's inevitable. Every creator that we work with is in the midst of this yeah. right now. And yeah. there's no way it's not going to have an effect on their psyche. And again, once we're out the other side of the tunnel they're going to they're going to channel those feelings into the stories that they put together there's no way that they that they can't and it, the question is really how directly uh, that stuff will be expressed and how much that will be more expressed you know again through through metaphor through situations that tap into those feelings and emotions and experiences but contextualize them in a a superheroic way so they're distanced enough that it's in air quotes safe for people to, to come and to experience and to feel like, you know, they can deal with without having a PTSD moment reading their comic. Tom, how do you as an editor balance that kind of distance? You know, something like the recent Champions book has seen these kids kind of go and fight, whether it's in the Middle East you know, against terrorists that are harming young girls or, you know, with a situation where there was a school shooting, it seems really kind of directly kind of up against some of these real world things. And I, and I always wonder, you know, cause anytime you do that, there's always the risk of, like you said earlier, kind of trivializing it or sure. making it into something that like superheroes can solve when in real, the real world, we can't really solve it. And, and a way that kind of there's a risk there. How do you as an editor, when a writer approaches you with a story like this, balance what you think is appropriate and, and, and maybe not? Well, particularly when it comes to stories that deal with uh, you know, a sensitive subject matter, uh, such as you know, the school shooting issue of Champions, that's not just down to me. In those instances, you know, I'll be having conversations with the editor-in-chief and, and with Dan Buckley, our publisher, and with you know, other folks like potentially uh, Sana Amanat. You know, uh, we'll be we'll be getting you know, Joe Casada. We'll be getting other other people's you know opinions and takes on what we're uh, doing to make sure that we're we're uh, you know approaching the, the 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 questions that are in the book you know in a in a in a substantial and and correct fashion and and that we're not not 
blowing it <laughs> basically you know there's the uh, you know the whole oeuvre of of marvel is it's it's meant to be the real world sure uh, and and so to some degree it's it's only right and proper that we do stories that at least in metaphor if not directly we grapple with what the issues of the time are in whatever time we happen to to be making them uh, and sometimes those become much more fanciful you know stories about you know, guys in in strange hidden cities or on other planets or 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 whatnot. But sometimes they're they're a little more direct and a little a little closer to home, like the school shooting issue. And individually, I mean, hopefully, we did all right with that issue, and and you know, it it made its point, and people liked it, and you know, it didn't send heads spinning somewhere. But you know, that's kind of more for the audience to to tell you than even for for you yourself all you could do is kind of come to it genuinely and and uh, you know try to be thoughtful and meaningful about what you present to the audience thanks for joining us for a special amazing friends episode of the all new amazing spider talk also a special thanks to tom brevoort for coming to talk to us during this unique time dan what's coming down the pike next for our show well, Mark, you never know what the hiatus will bring, except in this case, because next week we're bringing you part two of our interview with Tom Brevoort. So not totally a surprise, but I think the content's really great and you guys are going to really love it. Also, we're still planning on launching season four of The Amazing Spider Talk on April 22nd. So be there or be square. But in the meantime, we hope you all especially be safe and healthy and make smart social distancing choices during this coronavirus scare. In the meantime, did you know that you can join in with our conversation on The Amazing Spider Talk? All you have to do is just call 9 Red Goblin and leave us a message about the show. We'd love to hear from you and you can hear your voice on the show just as Jason did at the beginning of this episode. And if you call in with your thoughts on our next show's topic, either the Brevoort interview you heard today or our upcoming discussion about Marv Wolfman's run, we may feature your message at the start of the show. Speaking of Patreon questions, the best way to get your questions answered by us on the show is by joining our Patreon. Just click on the link in the podcast description or head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com. This week, our Patreon subscribers can check their Patreon-exclusive podcast feed for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 42. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, Patreon-exclusive episodes, Spider Slack, and Bailbag episodes. And depending on your tier, you will also be entered into our monthly raffle where you get to win some great Spider-Man-related merchandise. Yeah, and at $10 a month, you gain access to our seasonal commissions. We'll send you artwork from famous Spider-Man artists exclusively commissioned for our patrons. This time we've got a commission from Max Fiumara depicting the famous fight from your favorite issue, Mark. Nothing can stop the juggernaut. Plus, every episode we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. So check out the Patreon and help support the continued existence of our show. And if you want to tune into that next episode that we're going to go to, know that you can always enjoy our show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or your podcast player of choice. We'd love to have you along for our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. Just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe. Mark, 
you got a lot of stuff going on typically. Where can we find you on the internet this week? Uh, you can always go back to the original mothership, which is my Chasing Amazing blog at chasingamazingblog.com. Actually, Tom Brevoort was an early commenter on Chasing Amazing. If you go back to my uh, write-up of Amazing Spider-Man number 297, we had a comment there from Mr. Brevoort on that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog, and you can always find my book in bookstores, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Dan, what do you got going on? That's really cool. I'm going to have to go back and look at that. I, I have like a vague memory of that of that happening. Yeah, I, you know, now now that I'm saying it, I'm like, wait, do I need to double? I know I had a conversation with him about that post. Was it on the post itself or was it on Twitter? I swear we had a conversation about this, Tom and I, and, and it ended up being brought up again at New York Comic Con. So if everyone now goes to the site and checks it out and I'm wrong, I'm not lying, okay? Like, I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless, we have another conversation happening with him next week for everybody to tune in. And you can find out about that by going to my Twitter, and it's at SupSpiderTalk. You can kind of follow all of my journey through Spider-Man stuff there and comments and yada, yada. And also, you know, check out AmazingSpiderTalk.com. That's the mothership for this very podcast. It's got all of our archives and all of our old articles and stuff. And it's also where we're going to be hosting the video version of the show when we launch it in April. So go check that out. Of course, a special thank you to Rick Coast, our amazing, spectacular, adjectivalist, web of, sensational, you get it, editor who cut together this very episode. Rick, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and where we can find your work? As far as my work goes, you can find a lot of it over at rickcoast.com. And you can also check out a brand new show called Rick Coast's Strange Encounters. If you love stories about the paranormal UFOs, strange things that go bump in the night. You'll love this show. You can find out more about that at strangeencounters.org. Awesome. Thanks, Rick. Well, Mark, let's bring this thing to a close with the motto we're always sure to remember. So take it away, Mark. With great podcasts, there must also come the all new Amazing Spider Talk. Uh, hi, I just wanted to say you guys are my favorite podcast and the fact that you guys like Ultimate Spider-Man so much, it's really nice. Hey, uh, Dan, um, I watch y'all's podcast every night and I'm finally getting my first Spider-Man comic, or multiple comics actually. I can't wait. Y'all the best podcast ever. Thank you. Hey, Mark and Dan, this is Noah calling from Pittsburgh. I just wanted to thank you guys for doing the show. I love listening to it. Uh, I started listening to you guys last summer uh, when you were in the middle of that Bronze Age season. And a couple years ago, whenever Homecoming came out, I decided I wanted to read every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, which makes the Marvel Unlimited is a lot easier to do than it used to be. Uh, I, I read a lot of the Stan Lee stuff. I started to get burnt out, jumped around, did JMS, Brand New Day era. Eventually, I had to take a long break, but then whenever I was ready to get back into it, finding you guys' show got me really excited and gave me the motivation to do it. And uh, I've had a great time with it. So I just want to thank you guys for doing what you're doing. Your, your passion for Spider-Man makes it a blast to listen to you guys all the time. Really scratches that itch 
to delve deeper into one of my favorite characters ever. So keep it up. I'm excited for season four. Just want to say, don't sleep on Len Wein, guys. He's uh, it's not a great run, but there's some there's some gems in there you guys should talk about. Thanks, guys.